Amen. How are we doing? Merry Christmas. It's the season of Advent is upon us. Are you excited? I am. Um, got nine lessons going on tonight. I hope many of you will come back and join us. It's a great, great tradition that we have been doing here for, I think uh, this is the sixth year we've been doing that, and we're only six years old, so it's, it's, a, it's a very old tradition. Um, so a uh, great night of music and uh, celebration. There'll be a little uh, party kind of after the event. We kind of walk through this. It's an old Anglican church tradition of nine readings from the scriptures and then nine uh, Christmas carols that we all sing and a fun night of music and some great musicians kind of who uh, are willing to serve us and, and, and help lead us in that time. Uh, also want to let you know that in, in lieu of a trad- typical kind of year-end gift this year, we're kind of encouraging folks to prayerfully consider uh, giving towards uh, the Brazil mission trip. Uh, we have a, a team of about 11 folks who will be heading to uh, uh, Rio de Janeiro, Angra dos Reis, over spring break this next year. <clears throat> a number of those folks are people who live full-time on support, and so this year we're trying to uh, kind of help raise some funds as a team to really help everybody on the team uh, get there a little bit. And so if you're looking for ways to give above and beyond in the, the coming weeks before the end of the year, and in particular, I just invite you to prayerfully consider making a donation to the, the mission trip uh, to Brazil. Uh, you can do that on Realm. Uh, you can also designate gifts here uh, in, in the offering as well. Uh, we got two baptisms today. We are going to celebrate a one here in the nine. We got another one in the 11. So that's exciting. Um, and we're going to dive into a series here, walking through uh, the opening parts of, of Luke's gospel here over the next few weeks. Uh, I love Christmas time. I don't know about you, but I, I love I love that we got to just dive right into singing uh, some great Christmas songs, great Christmas carols this morning, worshiping the Lord through those. Uh, one of my favorite things to do with our family is kind of, of course, watching some of our, our favorite Christmas movies. I'm, I'm sure many of you enjoy doing that too. I have my own personal top five list um, in, in no particular order. Uh, Elf, right? Anybody like Elf? Um, uh, one of my favorites that we watch every Christmas Eve, uh, Crystal and I, is It's a Wonderful Life, the, the old uh, uh, film. Uh, Christmas Vacation, of course. Um, a Christmas Story. And last but not least, Die Hard. Yeah, it's totally a Christmas movie. Don't, don't even try to argue with me that it's not a Christmas movie. It takes place at Christmas time at a Christmas party. All of the music in the film is Christmas music. Scored a little differently, um, but and even at one point, you know, Bruce Willis kills a terrorist and puts a Santa hat on the guy. So uh, it's definitely, definitely festive. Um, I was thinking about what all these films kind of mean to me and what they kind of have in common, and I think I narrowed it down that Christmas is a time of unexpected surprises, right? It's a time of unexpected surprises, and there are surprises in all of these films, right? And in the Christmas story, it appears Ralphie is struck out on Christmas morning, didn't get his dream present of that Red Ryder BB gun, uh, but surprise, it was hidden, he got it, almost shot his eye out. Um, and it's a wonderful life, right? George Bailey is surprised by the overwhelming love of his, his friends and family who, who save him and kind of bail him out by their, their generosity. In Christmas vacation, all kinds of surprises. Uh, Cousin Eddie showing up at, uh, the, at the festive uh, holiday season when, in the RV and then actually helping save the day by kidnapping Clark's boss. Um, in Elf, Buddy the Elf is surprised to discover he's not, in fact, a six-foot-three elf, but he has another family, and, and he has what it takes 
of course, to, to save Christmas and bring his family together. And in Die Hard, well, surprise, the, the Christmas party just got ruined by a bunch of terrorists. Surprise, the terrorist Christmas just got ruined by John McClane, Bruce Willis. And surprise, it's a Christmas movie. It is. So now, now the, the point of all this is that we're looking at a text today where a very young woman, uh, actually we, we probably should call her a very young girl, as Mary was likely 14 or 15 years old when the angel visits her with this news. Uh, this young lady named Mary is, is going to get some very unexpected news about a baby, right? Surprise! And what made it such an unbelievable surprise was that Mary wasn't Mary. Uh, she was engaged, betrothed, it says in the text, which is a, a very official, a formal kind of engagement that actually required a divorce to break. She was engaged and she was a virgin. She had not ever been with a man. So news of a baby is, is very unexpected. Huge surprise. And this wasn't just any baby, but the savior of the world. This young girl is being entrusted with the care of a newborn baby who is, in fact, the creator and sustainer of all things. Big job. Big surprise. How, how would she respond to this, this news, this promise of great joy? And even more, what does this promise have to say to us, and, and how should we respond to it? Well, we're going to dive into our text today, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Luke 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, for this time uh, to to intentionally focus our thoughts on the the first advent, the first coming of Christ, and to even look beyond ahead to the second coming, when he will usher in the fullness of his kingdom in glory. Lord, would you help us to see the, the enormity, the greatness of this good news in this announcement to Mary in this passage, Lord. Help us to see what it means for us and help us cling to that. Help us respond to that with, with, with deep and, and growing faith that changes us and transforms us that we might join in the mission of sharing that news with others. 
We pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. You may have a seat. Notice, first off, there there are three exchanges between uh, the messenger, the angel Gabriel, and and Mary. The angel speaks three times, and Mary responds three times. The angel delivers this promise of great joy, but what is the promise given? Well, the promise is this, that the Most High has become the most low. The Most High has become the most low. Twice in this passage, God is called the Most High. And the message is, is that He has become Lo, the creator and the sustainer of the universe, God himself is becoming a baby, right? The, this, this, this is the promise of the incarnation, God becoming man. The most high has become the most low. But, but what does the incarnation mean for you and me? What does it mean for you and me? What, what does this promise given here mean? It means a couple things. First, it means that God is far greater than we think, right? Than we've ever thought. And it also means that we are far more sinful than we realize. Uh, This is what the promise communicates to us. First, that God is is far greater than we thought. Far greater than we thought. There's no other philosophy or religion in the world that would ever consider the, the, the reality of God becoming man. In every other way of thinking outside Christianity, God is, is too great uh, to become man, let alone a single, weak, unique, tiny, newborn baby born in the most lowly conditions. Uh, many others reject uh, the, the incarnation because it, it, it forces Christ to be too central. It, it makes too much of Christ, and we want to keep him in the box of good teacher, uh, a good, good person to, to learn from. Judaism and Islam reject the incarnation because they believe that God is, is too great to become limited like that. But this passage is actually telling us that, that it is by becoming the most low that makes him most high. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, right? that he is lifted up, he is exalted, his name is exalted above every other name because of his becoming low humbling himself, taking the form of human likeness, uh, being uh, made to be a servant. Pastor Tim Keller says it like this. He says, in fact, to disbelieve in the incarnation in the name of the greatness of God is actually to diminish his greatness. C.S. Lewis, in his work Miracles, says it like this. We catch sight of a new key principle the power of the higher, just in so far as it is truly higher, to come down. The power of the greater to include the less. Thus, solid bodies exemplify many truths of plain geometry, but plain geometry figures uh, no truths of solid uh, geometry. Everywhere the great enters the little, its power to do so is almost the test of its greatness. Let me help those of you who got lost at geometry. Um, you, if you have a dog, right, you, you can get down on the floor and act like a dog with your dog. You can bark and, you know, howl at the moon and, and, you know, chase them around on all fours. You can act like a dog, but at no point in time will your dog pull up a chair at the kitchen table and, and drink a cup of coffee with you and talk about Harry Potter. You know, it's not going to happen. Again, everywhere the great enters the little, its power to do so is almost the test of its greatness. To flip it around, it's the inability of the lesser to enter the greater that proves that it is the lesser. Your dog can't 
talk about Harry Potter with you and enjoy a cup of coffee sitting at your table that my dog tries. Um, Wisdom can always understand and spot foolishness for what it is, right? But But to foolishness, wisdom is incomprehensible. God is far greater than we thought. He's far greater than we thought. That's the first thing the promise tells Mary, and it's the first thing it tells us. The angel says to Mary, Mary, you thought God was great, but let me tell you how much greater he really is. Let me tell you how great he is. The most high has become the most low. God is becoming man. But the incarnation doesn't just tell us about God's greatness. It also has something to say about us as well. And what it tells us is we are far more sinful than we think. We're far more sinful than we think. Uh, that's the message uh, here to Mary. You're, you're worse than you thought you were. Uh, and here's what you need. Happy Christmas. Um, and, and you're like, where, where is that in the text? Well, the reality is that every gift carries with it a message, right? Here in a few weeks, uh, we'll gather around the living room. We'll open some Christmas, Christmas presents. And let's just say hypothetically that I get a couple books because I like books. But the first book I open for my family is How to uh, Win Friends and Influence People. Subtitle, Becoming a Kinder, Gentler You. Right? Uh, and, and I open that and I think to myself, okay, well, all right, that's, that's nice. And then I open the second book. And it's a, it's a workout and diet combo book, right? Lose 30 pounds in 30 days. Okay? Hmm. What which, which should, should I be thinking about these gifts, right? To, to receive those gifts in that moment and then say thank you for them is to openly admit I am a big fat jerk, right? <laughs> That, that's, what it, that's what it says when I receive those gifts with gladness and thanks. Think about what the gift of Christ is saying, what the incarnation is saying to us. God has emptied himself. He has become nothing, taking on the form of, of human likeness, the nature of a servant. Jesus sets aside his crown, his rights, his power in some ways to step out of heaven to be born that helpless baby in a stable in Bethlehem. Even more than that, Jesus eventually empties himself of his very own life, his fellowship with God the Father and with God the Spirit to suffer and die in your place for your sins. The message of the incarnation is the gospel. It's the good news of the gospel that that Jesus has come to live the life that you never could. The sinless life that you never can live. And Jesus has come to die, to exchange that life, and to die on the cross in your place for your sins. He's the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb of God, led to the slaughter to atone for your sin. And Jesus Christ has come to be raised again in victory over sin and death, reconciling you to God and to one another through repentance, turning from your sin and trusting in him with saving faith. Jesus is given to do all of this. Why? Because our condition apart from Christ is so terrible. It's so desperate. Our need is enormous. We are far more sinful than we think we are. We don't don't just need a little bit of help. We need rescue, complete and total rescue. Right To open those gifts on Christmas, those books, uh, you know, is for me to say, am I, am I this way? Is this what I'm like? 
And if we're thinking about it, when we look at the gift of Christ, we must immediately ask, are we this bad off? And the answer is, yes. Yes, you are. The message of the incarnation is the gospel. It tells us that God is far greater than we thought. It tells us that we are far more sinful than we think. But it also tells us that God is far more loving than we can imagine. He's far more loving than we can imagine. The angel tells Mary in verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus, the name Jesus means Savior. It literally means God rescues. And the angel continues in verses 32 through 33. He will be great and he will be called the the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus has come to rule as king. As, as the king who has come to save you and me. And he's emptied himself. He's made himself nothing. He's lived and died and been raised again to save us. The incarnation shows us how much God loves us. It shows us the great extent to which he's willing to go to pursue us and to rescue us. We need to remember not just Christ's coming, but why he came. Remember that that God created us to live in his kingdom under his rule. To live in perfect relationship with him. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see things as God intended them to be. Adam and Eve have perfect fellowship in those opening couple of chapters of Genesis. They have perfect fellowship with God. But then Genesis 3 happens, and it's all shattered. It's all destroyed. Sin, we sin, and fellowship with God is broken. Our relationships with one another are are tarnished and broken, are fractured. Creation itself is distorted. This world is not as it should be because of our sin. But even at, at the fall, in Genesis 3, God displays his great love for us in making a promise that he will not leave things the way that they are. He already has a plan set in motion. He already had a plan set in motion before the foundation of the world to rescue us, to redeem us. And Jesus is the plan. He is the plan. His coming, his living, his dying, his his rising again is the plan to rescue all of us from sin and death. The incarnation shows us to what great lengths God in his love always intended to go to, to restore us to relationship with him. You realize as you read through the gospel, there is no point at which Jesus is like, I don't want to do this. I I don't want to leave heaven to become a baby for these people. You never hear him saying this. I I don't want to live and die for them. You never hear him say anything like that. He never thought that. In great love, unimaginable love, Jesus came and and he he lived and he died and he was raised for you and me. God is greater than you thought. It's the gospel. He's not just that great. He's not just great. He's that great. You are more sinful than you think. You're, You're not just a little bit broken and needing a little bit of a boost. You are destroyed in your sin. You need someone to completely come and pick you up and lift you out of the pit of your sin and death. 
And God in Christ has done the most radically loving thing that could ever be done. He has loved you from eternity past, having you and your rescue in mind before he created a single star in the sky. He has loved you by, by giving all of himself for you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. No one loves you like that. Your parents can't love you like that. Your spouse can't love you like that. Your children can't love you like that. Only God loves us like this. He loves you far more than you can imagine. That is the promise that's given here. Well, how does Mary respond to this promise? She responds beautifully. There's a reality that, that Catholics often make too much of Mary, but, but Protestants often make too little of her. Her response here is, is great, and it is a progression that moves through uh, with each of her three exchanges with the angels. It's a progression of, of three stages that help us see how we should be responding as well. She begins with an awakening. That's the first stage. An awakening. Verse, verse 29 sounds a little bit strange uh, when you think about it. The angel appears to her, says, greetings, and, and it says, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. It's like, I don't, I don't know how many different types of greetings do angels have. I'm not, I'm not sure. But, but digging into the original language here, it, it could be that, that what is actually happening is that Mary is a little bit surprised to encounter an angel. And she's trying to discern, like, you know, hey, pinch me. Is this real? Am I awake? Is this really happening? And, and she's coming uh, awake to, the, to coming to terms with the reality that, yeah, this, this is really happening. There is an angel here uh, talking to me right now with this message. It's actually happening. And she's awakened to the fact that God is truly speaking to her through this messenger. That's the first stage of, of any response to the gospel is being awakened to the possibility that it is true. Being awakened to the possibility that it is true. Awakened to the reality that you are sinful. That you're not just a little bit broken. You're not just in need of a little bit of help. You need complete and total rescue and redemption. It's becoming awake to the possibility that God has in fact loved you so much that he was willing to send his own son to live and die and be raised for you. That's always the first stage of a response to the gospel. Like it is, and like it is for Mary, for us this stage is always initiated by God. It's always initiated by God. He awakens us by his Holy Spirit to the possibility. Twice, the angel mentions that Mary has found favor with God. That's grace. Favor. It says that in the Old Testament, Noah found favor with God. Right? You see, it wasn't anything special about Mary. It wasn't that she was perfect. She's not divine. There's nothing special that makes her worthy of becoming the mother of Jesus. She found favor. She found grace. God extended grace and invited her in to this story. His story. She didn't earn it. God chose her. In the second stage of Mary's response, we see here is sincerity. The angel explains what what God is about to do in in verses 31 through 33, right? That that he's going to, she's going to give birth to a son. He's going to be called the son of the most high. His name is Jesus. He's going to save people from their sins. The, The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign. His kingdom will have no end. And what is Mary's response? Look at verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? 
You see what Mary's doing here is she's expressing her doubts. Like, really? God, you're going to do this thing, but how is this going to work? Like, I'm not married. I've never been with a man. How am I going to have a child? She's, she's expressing doubts. In sincerity, she brings her doubts to God. She talks it through with him. She talks it through with the angel who's representing him. She's wrestling here. And, and here we see that God does not have issues with our doubting, with our questions, but rather he invites us to bring those to him, to bring them to him. But too many of us in our doubts, we, we turn away from God. We, we don't bring those doubts to God. We bring them to our friends or our, our own thinking, and we won't bring them to the Lord. Mary shows us here what to do with our doubts. You take them to God. You ask Him your questions. You seek Him out in His Word and in prayer. You, you seek Him out in, in trusted community of people who are in the Word and in prayer. Mary shows us how to wrestle in faith, how to question our doubts and see what God would say to us through them. Now, now, some of you in your own doubt here are probably no doubt thinking, of course she believed what the angel said. People back then were just predisposed to believe in something as ridiculous as a virgin birth, right? That's what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, by the way, that we are so much more advanced and so much more thoughtful and smarter now that we would never just assume things. But people back then, they were just so primitive that they were just open to believing whatever, But the text shows us that that this is plainly not true. Mary didn't think that it was any more possible than you or I do for a virgin birth to take place. She voices her doubt. How will this be? Since I am a virgin, this isn't something that happens. I don't know how this is possible. She didn't accept the virgin birth because uh, she had some kind of primitive worldview. She was just like you and me in thinking that there's no way this can happen. She believed the virgin birth because it happened. That's why she ended up believing it. The author of this gospel is the medical doctor, uh, Luke, uh, the methodical historian, Luke. And he would not have included this in his account if he did not regard the virgin birth as fact. Would you, like Mary, would you take your questions and your doubts to God? Would you bring them to him and, and ask him to speak into them? And, and then, would you, would you give him the space to respond? Right? Ask him if he's there. Ask him, ask him if it's true. And then, would you give him the space to speak, to show himself to you? That's what Mary does. And she listens as, as the angel speaks to her for a third time in verses 35 through 37. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And, and, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. God is so great. His love is so great. The angel says, nothing, nothing is impossible with God. And Mary then moves from sincerity to the third stage of submission. Submission. Look at verse 38. It's, it's beautiful. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me 
according to your word. That is beautiful submission. It's profound faith. Remember, keep in perspective here. I have a 14-year-old daughter. Mary is likely 14, 15 years old in this moment, responding in this way. This is, this is profound faith to say, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me as you say. And let's be clear what she's saying when she says, let it be to me, according to your word. This is a very traditional culture. She's saying, I understand what you just said means that I will be an unwed mother. I'm going to be pregnant before I'm married. I'm engaged to Joseph right now, but I'm going to get pregnant. And here's what she's saying. She's saying, let it be to me that I am disgraced. Let it be to me that I am disgraced by the people around me. If that's what you want, Lord, I accept it. And make no mistake, she will be disgraced. Everyone will know the scandal of this unwed mother. She will be ostracized from her family and friends. She also believes that when she says this at this moment, that this means that Joseph will, in fact, divorce her. And apart from the intervening visit of the angel with him that instructed him not to do that, he he would have. And then she would have always been an unwed single mom, which in this culture would mean she would always be on the brink of extreme poverty, extreme desperate conditions. And what does Mary say to all of that? She says, let it be to me. Let it be to me. She isn't filled with joy, I don't think, at this moment yet either. She's not filled with joy at this moment. She sees what she needs to do, and she says, I give myself in service of the, to the Lord. And then the joy comes later. She submits first, and the joy comes later. We'll look at that next week as, as Mary visits Elizabeth, and the Spirit fills Elizabeth to speak to Mary about her baby, and Mary bursts out into joyful worship. But this is Mary's response. She's awakened to the possibility yet filled with doubts and in sincerity she brings those doubts to God and in faith she submits. She says, I see the evidence, I see what is going on and I give myself to you unconditionally. And and this, this... this isn't the way most of us become, well, this is the way most of us become Christians, right? Uh, it's, it's not a blinding light experience on the road, right? All at once experience. For most of us, it's not that way. For some of us, it might be that way, that all at once experience. But for most of us, there are stages. There are struggles. And there is surrender. And eventually, there is joy. And for those of you who are here today and you're not a Christian, Those of you who are here and you have doubts and you have questions, would you bring those doubts, would you bring those questions to Jesus? Would you bring your struggles to Him? Wrestle with them, talk them through with God. Talk with Him and invite Him to speak into that with you. I pray that you would would find great hope and faith in Him that brings you great joy in knowing that He is greater than you thought that you are far more sinful than you you realize, but that he is far more loving than you could ever imagine, far more gracious for all of us as we think on this first advent, this first coming of our our Lord, as as we think on the response of Mary here. Let's let that shape our response to God. 
that we would be willing to say, Lord, I'm your servant. Let it be to me as you would have me, to live for you, to live for your glory in every way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much for this time uh, to celebrate, uh, to rejoice in the gift that you have given. And we acknowledge that that gift has a lot to say about us. It, it, it declares your greatness, God, but it also declares our, 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 our desperate condition, our, our depravity, our desperate, desperate need for rescue, that we are not capable of helping ourselves and fixing ourselves. We need a Savior. And Lord, thank you that in this gift you provide the Savior we need, the only Savior that will do, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life, who died the death that we deserved in our place, and who is raised and seated at the right hand of the glory of God. And will come again to usher in the fullness of his kingdom that will have no end. Lord, may you help us in this time as we wait upon that second advent. To be people who would say, let it be to me. To be people who would say, Lord, have your way with me. I'm your servant. To live for you in every way possible. For your glory, for our good, and and for our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.